If you have your Bible with you, please make your way to Luke chapter 3, or if your phone, your tablet, whatever you're going to be reading the Word of God on. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 10 and running through verse 18 this morning. We are in a three-week focus of John the Baptist, leading up to the baptism of Jesus Christ. And last week we uh, began using the Gospels together to begin understanding John's mission and preparing the way for the Messiah, his message that he was preaching. And this week and next week, we're going to be looking at some responses that people had to John. This week, the response is one of application. Um, As they hear John preaching this message, preparing the way for Jesus Christ, John's message was a message of repentance. He had a baptism of repentance, and he was calling people to bear fruit with repentance. And so the people were asking, what shall we do? And that question is, how does this look in our life? The, the, they understood the term repentance, as it's an Old Testament term, derives from a Hebrew verb meaning to turn. Repentance was not a belief, but repentance is an action. It is turning back to God in obedience and trust and love in order to do His will throughout our life. We're going to be looking at two questions John was posed or given one this week and one next week. The the question this week comes from the crowds, the tax collectors and the soldiers, and they asked John, what then shall we do after hearing his message? Next week, we're going to look at the second question, which is found in the Gospel of John, and it was given by the Pharisees and Sadducees, and their question was, who are you? They were questioning John's authority to deliver such a message and calling people to such an action. But what shall we do? Have you felt that way in the last six months? What in the world is this going to look like? What is going to be expected of me? What can I do or what can't I do? How do I live this out in my life? You know, being married to a teacher, it's a question she's been having for about six months. And now that school is just on the horizon, it's what is this year going to look like? You know, what... What am I going to do in the classroom because it's going to require her to change her teaching methods a little bit? How is she going to let the kids know that she actually loves and cares for them when she has to maintain a distance? And, you know, what's going to happen if we go virtual 100 percent? You know, what's that going to look like? There's a lot of questions. You know, I had that question same as, as a, a pastor when this all went down in the, in the phase of the lockdown. You know, what, what is going to be expected of the church during this time? You know, what can I expect of the body of Christ? You know, how is this going to work? I like preaching in front of people and seeing people's responses and and, and facial gestures. I I try to read your cues, whether or not you're ready for me to cut it off or not. But um, I I couldn't do that through a video. I had two people there with me, and and I was just talking to a camera. and, And so those questions of uncertainty... I think we all have dealt with that question of uncertainty in the last several months, whether it's been with your job or your co-workers, your family, vacations, traveling, where can we go, where can we eat, where shouldn't we go. Uncertainty is something we have all become very familiar with during 2020, which is funny because we started 2020 with a series called Commit and, and just having a clear vision and then the world fell apart and we were left wondering what shall we do now? Just like the people who are hearing John preach, wondering to know, where is the certainty that I can have? What, what 
plan of attack should I be living in this world? What, what method should I be applying to my life? See, John's crowd desired a practical application to the message to which they were receiving, and John was going to give it to them. Like I said, we're going to be in Luke 3. We're going to begin in verse 10. This passage is connected to what we looked at last week when John called out the Pharisees and Sadducees as brood of vipers or the spawn of Satan. And then he delivered to the whole crowd the coming judgment. In verse 9 says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And this leads to the two responses. John, you're preaching a message of repentance. We're being baptized for repentance. And then you're calling us to bear fruit with repentance. What does this look like in our life? How do we practically do this? And so John delivers four practical applications that we can apply to our own life as a believer and also to how to do it as well. Let's read our passage and we'll walk through it. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you because we want to be a people who are living holy and pleasing to you. So we come before you just as the crowds came to John asking, what shall we do? How can we live a life that shows that we know we are loved by you and we in fact love you? So Father, I ask your scriptures just to open up that your spirit would use me as an instrument to present your word and your truth, and that we're able to apply it today and apply it for the, this week that's coming and the rest of our lives. <clears throat> I thank you for everyone that's here. I thank you for their willingness and obedience to gather in your house. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are not here this morning for whatever reason. Father, we know that many are, are wrestling with fear and having a lack of peace. So Father, I pray that you just overwhelm them with your presence, overwhelm them with your peace. Remind them that fear is not something that you give us. Father, but you give us a sound mind. You give us power and strength. Lord, I just I pray that this morning we know that we've heard from you and we'll be transformed by you. I thank you for what's going to happen in our time as we walk through your word. Just remove me from this equation, Lord. Let it just be you and you alone to be glorified. And pray us all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. <clears throat> what shall we do? If you're here last week, verses 15 through 17 should 
sound familiar. We looked at those last week, so we're not going to spend as much time on those this week. If you'd like to hear what the world John's talking about there, you can go check out the church podcast. Um, you can find that through the church's website um, or on Facebook. There's a couple posts about that. John Burke writes that John is trying to advise each group of the concrete actions to which they should perform appropriate for their place in life and necessary to achieve righteousness and to bear fruits worthy of repentance. John, for us, is laying the groundworks on what we should do as believers. When we say we believe in Jesus Christ, there should be an action and a reaction that comes about in our life and what we are doing so people know we are, in fact, believers. We should note that John never tells his audience and what they should do is they should come out and set up camp with him out in the wilderness by the Jordan River. John never tells the tax collectors or the soldiers that they should leave their vocation or occupation. Instead, John calls those who are asking him, what shall we do with this message and bearing fruit of repentance to do their jobs and do their life in a way that is pleasing to God? John's application mirrors what James wrote in his own book in James chapter 2. So also faith by itself, if it, has, if it does not have works, is, je- is dead. John has given us understanding that repentance and living for God cannot be just lip service. It's not able, a place where we say that I am a believer or I am a Christian or I am saved. That's not enough. There has to be a reaction to that salvation moment. When we have come convicted and repent of our sin and earn and get salvation, there needs to be a way that we change the way our, our way of living in life so that people can know our repentance was, in fact, genuine. That's what repentance means. It means to change an action. The first group we see is in verse 10, and it's referred to as the crowds. It's an anonymous title. These individuals would have consisted of Jewish people who have come out to hear John's message. We can know that from the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. It said all Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan came to hear this message and to receive a baptism of repentance. The phrase crowds in verse 10 can also be read as people of the land. These are people of the covenant. They are belonging to the Abrahamic covenant. They're God's people. They're Jewish individuals. And yet they come out to this remote place because they are not hearing what they feel they should be hearing and not receiving what they should be receiving in Jerusalem, at the temple, or in the synagogues, through the priests. And so they go out to John. But when they hear John's message, they understand they aren't just to listen to this. They need to apply this in our life and so that they are living according to the message they are believing. This is where we have to be as a believer. We cannot just be hearers of God's word when we gather into God's house, but we have to be doers of his word. Jesus said that is, in fact, a wise individual. To be foolish is to simply go to church, read your Bible, and hear it over and over again, but not apply any of it to our life. These crowds wanted to know, what does this look like in our life? If we're going to bear fruit with repentance, how do we, in fact, do that? So John's practical application is in verse 11. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. What shall we do? Be compassionate. That's what John's telling them. Be compassionate. Be aware of other people. See, in this custom, majority of Jewish people had two tunics. The 
under tunic would be like our, our, uh, an undershirt when we're all dressed up. It's what we do to catch our sweat, right guys? And then they would have a robe or some sort of cloak that would go over it. John is saying, you have more than enough. And there are people that God has placed in your life who don't have anything. So give to them out of your abundance and the blessings that God has given you. Do it not only with your clothes, but do it with your food, knowing that there are people all around you who are starving and they are hurting. John is not telling them that they can achieve a better relationship with God based upon their works, but he's saying that there needs to be an appropriate and sincere response to the message to which we hear when God speaks to our hearts. It's to realize how blessed they in fact are and to be aware that God has already placed a ministry around them to show compassion on those people just as God has shown compassion on us. You know, twice a year at the Hurchin House, we do something that I do not enjoy, and that's going through closets and going through dresser drawers. You know, we have to do it twice a year because our kids just keep growing, becoming more expensive. Some of y'all parents can, re- can understand that. But we'll go through and, and we'll pull out shirts and shorts and pants and stuff we know that our kids can't wear anymore. We'll do the same in our own closet. Sometimes it's not because they don't fit. It's just that I'm ashamed to say, and maybe you can relate to this, but there are things in my closet and things in my drawer that I haven't worn in almost a year. No one probably can relate to that because I'm, I'm horrible. I'm a, I'm a hoarder. It's where my kids get it. But I, I just looked in my closet this morning, and I, there are shirts that I haven't worn since we moved to Stratford. And I don't know why I keep them. I don't know why they're there. They're nice shirts. But we live in a community where there are people who literally have two, maybe three outfits, and they're pretty worn out. We live just miles down from a city where we can see people on the street corners any day of the week, and they maybe have two outfits, and they're wearing down. Yet we have multiple outfits, we have multiple shoes, we have multiple things. We are so blessed. What John is teaching the crowds and what the Word of God is teaching us is to be aware how much we are blessed and how much we in fact need and look for the people that God has already placed around us that we can be a blessing to them by being compassionate. That we can love on them through a physical means. John isn't making up a new commandment or a new way of life. He's simply taking from the Old Testament, which he's preaching about. And Leviticus 19, 18 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the second greatest commandment that Jesus quotes in his own ministry. The point is the fruit of repentance leads to a work of love for our fellow man. John is telling his audience that we are blessed to share the blessings. And he points to two basic means, clothing and food. Share what we have with those who don't have. The fruit of repentance is realizing we had nothing, nothing in ways of deserving our salvation or earning our salvation, but God in His mercy and His compassion upon us provided everything that we need. It's to realize that our greatest need was filled in forgiveness and salvation and then loving people that God has already placed around us in such a way that amplifies His love to us. And so when we do it through a physical means, whether it's food or clothing or something else, what happens is we're showing compassion, but it opens the door for an eternal question that people often ask when Christians act the way they're supposed to act. Why are you doing this? 
And then we can say, because God loves me, and He commands me to love you and show compassion, we may not agree on everything, but I am commanded to love you as I would love myself. We love all people because we know we are greatly loved by God. The second group is in verse 12. It's tax collectors. It can also be referred to as toll collectors. Now they're out with John, and we know that everyone who came to hear John were Jewish individuals. And so these tax collectors or toll collectors are Jewish tax collectors. And we can read over this so easily, but this is pointed out because these were the most disdained people. They were hated. They were, they were hypocrites. They were backstabbers. Nobody liked tax collectors in this day. I don't know how you feel about them today, but in this day, they were hated. People wanted to literally kill them because what they did is they were a symbol to the Jewish people that they were under the pagan Roman Empire and they had to pay taxes. Otherwise, they couldn't go about their life. They could get thrown in jail. But these tax collectors, and to, to become a tax collector as a Jewish individual, you had to go to whoever is over your area. So like Herod Antipas, you would go to him and say, hey, I will pay you so much money so I can become a tax collector. And so you would make your bid for this position, this job. And if you got it, that meant you started in the red. You were in the deficit. And of course, you want to get out of the red, right? And so what tax collectors did, they would go take take taxes, and then they would put a tax on top of the tax so they could get out of the red and live in a surplus. These were very wealthy individuals that everyone hated in the Jewish society. But notice John does not tell these tax collectors to stop being a tax collector. He says in verse 13, collect no more than you are authorized to do. He, he, he understands the mentality towards them, the way they must feel. They were outcasts in their own society as a tax collector. You could not be a witness in the Jewish court of law. You were not allowed into the temple because you were deemed unclean because you took money for a pagan, idolatrous nation. These people had no one to turn to. Yet we find Jesus, our Lord and Savior, calling a tax collector to be his disciple. And a lot of people had issues with that. Tax collectors under Roman law were not required to be honest. They didn't have to tell the truth. They could lie their way into wealth. And John, hearing the question from these tax collectors, what shall we do? He says, be honest. Be truthful. He doesn't tell them to quit their job. and said, be honest in your job. Be honest how you do your job. Though society may look at you as outcasts, know that God is inviting you in to His story. The point is, in all of our jobs, no matter what we do, as our kids get ready to head back to school, everything we do, all of our responsibilities, we will have moments when we can be dishonest. We will have moments when we will be tempted to not live out what we believe and to compromise what we know to be right. Tax collectors had a job to do. It was Rome who employed them, but it was God who placed them where they were supposed to be. They were to do their work even for a pagan empire, but they were to do it for the Lord. Their jobs, their duty was to be under the terms of being honest and just. 
John was basically preparing the way for Jesus when he would say in Matthew 7, So whatever you wish that others do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We know it is the golden rule. Paul would write to the believers in Colossians that in whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. He gave a similar instruction to the believers in Corinth. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. John isn't preceding Christ. He isn't preceding Paul's teaching. He's simply stating what God had already said in the Old Testament in the book of Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice. That means to act righteously, to act truthfully, to love kindness or to love mercy, meaning to show a level of mercy which God has shown us, but do it to other people and to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with God is to recognize it's not about our work ethic, but it's about what God has already provided it's to know that we are in complete reliance upon God. This is what John is telling the tax collectors to do. You're not to rely upon these evil means to get money. You're to rely upon God to provide for you what you need. So only take what you're supposed to take. Our application is to let our actions be the evidence of our repentant heart. Even if we live in a vocation that may be disdained or people don't look highly upon, we are to change people's perspectives by changing our own actions. If we want people to know that we're saved and changed by God, then we have to live like we have been. It's not that our actions are to speak louder than our words. It's that our actions are to speak as loud as our words. The third group that comes to John are soldiers. These are not Roman soldiers, by the way. The Greek word is different for a Roman soldiers. The soldiers in verse 14 are those in service, meaning these are also Jewish individuals, most likely under the authority of Herod and Tippus. They were most likely at the Jordan River because they were there to protect the tax collectors. The tax collectors, a lot of times, caused riots. People would jump them and beat them, and so they would get soldiers to protect them. They're like bodyguards to protect these tax collectors, but they become convicted, and they ask John as well, what shall we do? These are individuals who were expected to shake people down. They were the intimidators within the Jewish community. They would go with the tax collectors. The tax collectors would get the tax they're supposed to collect. Then they would get the tax on top of the tax. And then the soldiers would come behind and say, Hey, if you want our protection, pay up. They were like a Jewish mob. And here they are at the Jordan River hearing this message of repentance, of bearing fruit of repentance. And they're like, what do we do with this? How does this impact our life? And so John gives them an application. Do not extort. That word extort means to collect or take. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content, satisfied with your wages. John is letting us know he's fully aware how these soldiers handle themselves. He's fully aware that when they show up and they shake people down, they intimidate them, that if people don't pay what they're asking to pay, what the soldiers do is they bring up a false claim about them and they throw them in prison. So people hated these guys too. They feared them as well. But what could you do? They had the backing of Rome. You were at their mercy. And John says, don't take more than what you're supposed to take and don't lie about people, but be content. 
He's telling them, what shall we do? You need to be meek. These men had power. They were unleashed to show their power. They were expected to be power over people. And John tells them to do their duty, but do it in a controlled strength. That's what meekness is. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is a controlled strength. It is a visible representation of grace. A visible representation of mercy. He's saying though you have the ability to do it, though you are armed and trained to do it, show a controlled strength. Be meek. Again, John doesn't tell them to leave their sinful profession. Even though he's fully aware that they intimidate, they shake people violently. He says, you have the strength and you have the power, but don't use that to your advantage. Instead, be content, he tells them. So what should we do? We should be meek and we should be content. To be content is to be content with what we have is to understand that all we have and even what we think we lack is because God ordained it that way. Returning back to Alexander Burke, he says that John is telling his men, avoid the common temptations of your vocation and cultivate both contentment and a detachment from riches. Again, like the tax collectors, John is aware what their job entails. He doesn't tell them to leave that job, but instead live godly in that job. Do it in such a way that it brings God the glory, not you, not your wallet, not your bank account. See, everyone is capable of doing anything for an unjust gain. The Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice it doesn't say that money is evil in itself, but it leads to evil practices and sinful natures. Jesus says no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. John is telling these soldiers to be content, to be satisfied with what they have. And in doing so, they will show the world their devotion not to Rome, not to Herod, not to the pocketbook, but they will show their devotion to God. And these are the practical applications, but John also gives us a how shall we do it. Not just what shall you do, but how do we do this? And it comes out of verse 15 through 17 in Luke 3. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. There was an anticipation in the crowd. And John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. We looked at these verses last week. John was telling people in verses 10 through 14 to think of others more than yourself, to love others as you love yourself, to treat people how you would want to be treated. And then what John does is he leads the charge on how to do it. They began asking, are you the Christ? They were expecting, anticipating the Christ, the Messiah to show up. And John says that he is not, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy unto untie. He's making very bold statements with this, this saying. First, he's saying he's unworthy to be the lowest of servants in any household. 
See, Jews didn't untie sandals because if you untied a sandal, that would make you dirty. It would make you unclean. You would have to go offer a sacrifice. You could be right with God. So there would be servants in the house, most likely Gentiles, who would come and untie these sandals because they wouldn't have to worry about going to the worship service at the temple. And so John is saying, I'm the lowest of servants compared to the one who is coming. Even more so, I don't even deserve to be in the covenant relationship with God as a Jewish individual. I'm unworthy. It's a huge statement that we would have missed, but the Jewish audience would have understood that the untying of sandals was, was meant for two people, a disciple or a pupil or a Gentile, which would be deemed an unbeliever. And John is saying that he understands the grace he has been given and the mighty and authority that is coming behind him and that he is unworthy even to be the messenger to prepare the way. John is making these statements because he is showing these crowds and these tax collectors and these soldiers how do you do what I just told you to do? He's saying that we need to lead by example. That's what John is doing. How shall we do it? We lead by example. John is, is telling them to look at his life, not to imitate his life, but to understand that he knows it's not about him. It's not about him receiving the glory even though he was drawing the crowds. The reality is if we want to see the change in others that God has placed in our life, if we want to see it in our kids or in our spouse or with our co-workers or with our peers at school, we have to lead the charge. We have to be the ones to make the change in ourselves first. John was saying, look at me as the example and what I'm doing. I'm not calling you to do anything I'm not willing to do. Then he also says, how shall we do it? By being and preaching Jesus. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. John's message was the message of judgment. Judgment was coming. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. But in the message of judgment, that's where the gospel is found. The message of repentance is good news, for it means forgiveness is possible. It is not Good because it is nice. And that word nice is never found in Scripture. There's not a Greek word for nice. But the gospel is good news because it is true. See, John had to preach judgment because it's judgment that brings conviction. And when we get under conviction, then we can repent of whatever we're being convicted of. But conviction and repentance never feels good because it reminds us we're doing something we shouldn't do. We're doing something out of God's will. But then the gospel comes. And the gospel comes because we understand I am sinful and I live outside of God's terms. But then there's good news that God made a way for me to be back in a relationship with Him. See, our living out of the gospel, our living out of our salvation is going to be a constant battle because we have the sinful nature inside of us. We are going to be tempted to do evil things just like the crowds, just like the tax collectors, just like the soldiers. But when God reveals that sinful nature, that judgment comes upon us to move us to repentance. And when we repent because we're convicted, there should be a fruit or an action that reveals that repentance to the people of this world. So we be like Jesus, meaning we live like Jesus. We preach Jesus because there's no other message worth repeating. And we do it by word and we do it by deed. That's how we do it.
I follow this, and I preach this, and I present this. I show compassion. I show meekness. I'm, I'm honest in what I do. And when people see the way I live, they will become curious enough to ask, why do you do what you do? And then I present Jesus verbally. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to be in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You've yet to meet Him. So I want to extend that invitation. John preached the good news with many other exhortations. That phrase in verse 18 means John did it continuously over and over until Jesus showed up. The word good news is gospel. Gospel is this. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, made you, He formed you, He created you for a relationship with Him. The issue is that we all sin, and it's our sin that separates us from that relationship with God. And it will ultimately separate people from eternity in heaven. And so what people tend to do is we try to do good things. We try to, you know, even out the, the, the balance. But the Bible reveals I can't remove my sin problem, nor can I prove myself to God that I'm good enough to deserve heaven. And that's why Jesus came. That's why John is preparing the way for Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a life we could not live, perfect, without sin. He died on the cross in our place, taking our punishment from God. They placed Him in a tomb, but He rose three days later. And the Bible says, when I believe that in my heart to be truth, absolute truth, and I confess it with my mouth, I will be saved. What do you confess? You confess you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus died for your sin and rose again. And you confess Him as your Lord and your Savior. Savior. And you find forgiveness and be given eternal life. You may be here this morning and that's what you need to do. You need to begin a relationship with God. The question, what shall you do right now, is when the worship band comes up to lead us, you should walk down the aisle and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. Maybe the message that John preached this morning, you've already done that. You've already accepted Christ. And so maybe the application this morning is, am I doing this with the people who are in my life? Am I being compassionate? Am I being meek? Am I being honest? Am I being truthful? Am I being Jesus to the people around me? That's a question we have to answer. Because we are the ambassadors for Christ, God appealing through us. Come this time of invitation, I'm asking Brother Nick to return. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Lord, thank you for not allowing us to remain where we are, but continuing to move us closer to you and closer to godliness. Lord, thank you that you have empowered us and enabled us to be your representatives in this world. Lord, forgive me when I have fallen short of that. When I have not been the Jesus the world needs to see, I have not been a Christian. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your rebuking me and correcting me. Lord, we come before you because we want to be people who bring you glory. We want to be a church that brings you glory. So let our hearts be softened to the words you've spoken to us today. Let us apply these things in our life and to the people that you've placed in our life, whether we're working from home or going to a physical location tomorrow. Father, for the people we interact, let them see there has been a change in us because of you. Allow that to go to eternal conversations. Father, I pray that you open doors this week that only you can open for that to happen. 
Forgive us if we failed you in any way. Be with this time of invitation. Lord, let it bring you glory and you alone. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.